Tonight we continue our study in 2 Peter, and we begin with verse 1 of, uh, of chapter 2, where the word but is found, and of course when we see that, it uh, tends to uh, take us back a little bit because there is uh, an obvious indication of a continuation of thought here. But there were also false prophets among the people. And what we had studied last time from the latter part of, uh, of chapter 1 had to do with the prophetic word and the more sure uh, prophetic word where Peter wrote in verse 19 of chapter 1, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. And that confirmation, as we talked about last time, had to do with the Mount of Transfiguration and what took place there as Jesus was transfigured uh, along with Moses and Elijah appearing there and Jesus was transfigured and uh, his clothing showed, uh, shone brighter than the, the midday sun, as it were. And Peter and James and John were privileged to witness that scene. And uh, Peter calls attention to that in the latter part of chapter 1 and does so to say in effect that we having seen this, know that the words of the prophets were indeed the words from God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, after all, look at what we saw. Look at the kind of miraculous confirmation that we were privileged to, to see. So we have that prophetic word confirmed, back to verse 19 of chapter 1. And then he says, "...which do, you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. And we said that's a verse that talks about the, uh, the shining of the light of the Word of God as the morning star, the day star, uh, a reference, I believe, to Christ here, rises in your hearts. In other words, Christ bringing light into a world darkened by sin. But then in verses 20 and 21 of the last chapter, he wrote, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That is, it did not originate in the minds of those prophets who spoke those words. But here's what did take place. Verse 21, But holy men, uh, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they were moved, or as we said, the word moved is the idea of being borne along like a ship, uh, being borne along the water by a, uh, by a sail that keeps it going. The Holy Spirit was that sail, if you will, that kept those prophets going in the sense that what they prophesied about, what they spoke was truly from God Almighty. But now we're back to verse 1 of chapter 2, the but. But, despite the fact that there were prophets who truly were from God and who spoke the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, that does not mean that there were not false prophets in that day. And that's where we begin in chapter uh, chapter 2, but there were also false prophets among the people. So while there were true prophets of God, as he has described in the latter part of chapter 1, he now introduces us to the fact that there were false prophets among the people, among the Jewish people. And of course, we clearly know that that is the case, and uh, various Old Testament passages point out the warnings about those who would lead the people astray. We know that there were false prophets uh, uh, in the days of the prophets, the good, true prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others who tried to counter uh, the true teaching of the Word of God. There were false prophets then, Peter now tells us, 
even as there will be false teachers among you. It's somewhat interesting that he shifts from prophets to teachers, perhaps in anticipation of the time when there would be no prophecy whatsoever, but there would still be teachers. And we are in that time where prophecy has ceased because all the prophecy has now been fulfilled. We have it all right here. But that is not to say that we still don't have false teachers. And yes, we could say there have been those even in our time who claim to be prophets. But there are false teachers among us today, just as Peter said there would be false teachers uh, among those Christians in the, uh, in the first century or in the time that he wrote. And he is simply one among many of the New Testament writers who made predictions about these false teachers and false prophets. The Apostle Paul had much to say about it in 1 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1. Also in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse uh, 1, that those who would uh, arise, who would be false prophets. Remember in Acts chapter 20, where is recorded there the exchange between Paul and the Ephesian elders as he uh, called them to himself at Miletus. He said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And then he talked about the time that he had spent with them, warning them night and day with tears. For I know this, that after my departure, there shall enter in grievous woes among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among your own selves shall men arise, teaching perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so clearly the Apostle Paul predicted that there would be those from among the eldership, those from among the body of Christ, who would arise as false teachers. And Peter makes that same assertion here. But notice this. He says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. The New King James uh, says secretly. Uh, the, uh, other trans some other translations mention privily. Uh, the word translated secretly or privily in some translations is a word that literally indicates by the side of, to bring it in by the side of. The idea is to slip it in, to slip it in alongside, alongside truth and to introduce that which uh, may have some element of truth in it, but which is also the kind of falsehood, even though it may be mixed with some truth, that is described here as destructive, as described here as being a heresy that which is totally opposed to the New Testament pattern and the New Testament teaching, and which will obviously destroy one's soul. Now, incidentally, the fact that Peter would introduce the possibility, in fact, says it will be a reality that there will be these false teachers, that when they come in with this false teaching, it tells us one thing immediately, and that is that there is truth versus falsehood that there is such a thing as absolute truth, otherwise there could be no contrast to it. If it doesn't matter and truth is absolutely relative, how could anything be uh, really false? And beyond that, how could anything be so false as to be characterized as destructive? Clearly a reference to destroying one's spiritual well-being, that is destroying one's soul, which tells us that once you are saved... You are not always saved. Again, one of the hundreds of passages in Scripture that makes it abundantly clear that indeed there can be and will be destructive heresies that will be brought in that many will buy into or follow that will be destructive to their immortal souls. 
And notice this, even denying the Lord who bought them, the Lord who redeemed them, clearly showing that among those who had been bought or purchased or redeemed by Christ, there would arise those who would be destructive in their teaching and those who after having been bought or redeemed would follow that teaching and thus be destroyed. Otherwise, I'm at a loss to know what destructive means. If destructive doesn't mean destroying one's soul, what would Peter be discussing? So clearly, here is a passage that predicts not only that there is falsehood as opposed to truth, but that that falsehood is destructive to the souls of mankind, destructive to those who had been bought or redeemed. That is, those who were a part of the body of Christ who would be led astray by this false teaching. It's interesting that the writer here, Peter, talks about denying the Lord, isn't he? Even denying the Lord. The man who wrote by inspiration these words was the man who himself denied the Lord. Denied the Lord three times. But it is also interesting to point out that those he describes here will deny the Lord after the Lord paid the ultimate price and made the ultimate sacrifice to redeem them from sin. Oh, it was bad that Peter denied the Lord, but it was a denial that came before the redemption on Calvary. And Peter did repent. And Peter understood fully and completely that redemption and what it meant to him. And even after he was told, Peter, you're going to die for me, as we just talked about just recently, and was told, follow me now, Peter did just that. Yes, the man who denied the Lord wrote about those who would deny the Lord. But how much graver is that, is that, is that uh, action? when it takes place among those who are on this side of Calvary and who've been blessed to see the kind of sacrifice that Christ has made, the sinless Son of God, suffering as He did, separating Himself as bearing sins upon His shoulders for all mankind and having to cry out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? To pay that kind of ultimate price for you and for me and then to have those who had been bought or redeemed to ultimately turn their backs upon him. You know, there's another passage that reminds us of the grave nature of that kind of departure in Hebrews because the Hebrews writer, if you recall, was writing to a group of Hebrew Christians, Hebrew background, who were being, who were being influenced to give up Christianity and go back under Judaism. And the writer of, uh, of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 29, or 28 and 29, speaks of um, uh, sinning willfully. We'll go back to verse 26 to get the greater context. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone, then, he, then in verse 28 of Hebrews 10, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on uh, the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now listen to this. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, 
counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. That's really what Peter is describing here when he talks about some who were insulting the spirit of grace, who were counting the, the blood of the covenant as of no value whatsoever, denying the Lord who bought them and bringing on themselves swift destruction. Swift destruction. You remember when we, uh, in Second Peter 1, verse 14, talked about, Peter talked about putting off that uh, tent or his tabernacle, meaning talking about dying. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you Remember verse 14, knowing that shortly, as the translation is there, but the word shortly is the same word in the original as swift here in 2 Peter 2.1. And we said that while Peter was an older man back then and probably knew that didn't have many years, what is more likely the case that he was saying was that my death when it comes is going to come very swiftly, very suddenly. A martyr's death is what the Lord himself had told Peter he would suffer. For his cause. And when he talks here about swift destruction, he is not saying that those who are doing these things or will do these things and bring in this false teaching are going to be struck dead on the spot. He's not saying it's that destruction that will be swiftly administered at the time of their error. But when that destruction comes, when that judgment does come, it will come with suddenness and with swiftness. And he'll talk more about that a little bit later on. But then in verses 2 and 3, and many will follow their destructive ways. Now listen to this, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow their destructive ways. The American standard speaks of their lascivious ways. And the word there in the original does deal with uh, with the kind of uh, immorality and sexual immorality and indulgence that is characteristic of, of many in the world today, obviously, and was characteristic of many in the world then. And what it likely indicates, because it does suggest sexual immorality and uncleanness of that nature, their destructive ways in that sense, it may suggest that those in Peter's time who were among these teachers he had in mind were those who were basically taking the liberty of the gospel and making license out of it. They were in effect saying, as we've talked about with the Gnostics, some of them, that it didn't matter what the body did because the body and the spirit uh, had no connection together and therefore the body's actions didn't affect the spirit. So I can do with my body whatever I want to do with it. And if I want to engage in sexual immorality, it's not going to affect my immortal soul. That was one contention. That was one contention. And back to denying the Lord who bought them may refer to some of the Gnostic ideas about the fact that Christ didn't really come to this earth in a real body, that it was just simply a spiritual idea and that he didn't really suffer in the flesh. He didn't come in the flesh. He only came in spirit and so forth. May have been some of the things involved. But... Liberty was turned into license by many in Peter's day. And there were those who were basically saying that since the body didn't affect the spirit, do with your body whatever you wanted to. But now notice something. 
Peter says, and many will follow their destructive or their lascivious ways. And you can understand why that might be the case. Someone comes to you and tell you, tells you it doesn't matter how you live. You can live your life any way you want to. As long as you claim to be a Christian, uh, your spirit is safe and your body is not going to be affected by whatever you do. So uh, eat, drink, and be merry and go to heaven when it's all over. That's nice work if you can get it. So it doesn't shock me that there were those who followed many, that Peter said many followed their lascivious or their destructive ways. But notice something about that. Because of whom, that is because of those who will buy into this kind of lie, into this kind of, of falsehood, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What's he saying? I think what he's saying, in effect, is there are those out here in the world who are unbelievers, who don't live like that, and yet you've got those who claim to be followers of Christ who have bought into this idea that I can do whatever I want to with my body and still be called a Christian, and that's my idea of Christianity, and that's the picture of Christianity that I'm presenting to the world, and out here there are infidels who don't go to that kind of extreme. They don't do with their bodies what these claiming to be Christians are doing with their bodies. And therefore, they say, is that Christianity? If that's Christianity, I don't want any part of it. I believe that's exactly what Peter is saying here. That they will live such a profligate lifestyle in the name of Christ, believe it or not, that those who are not of Christ will actually blaspheme the way of truth or criticize the way of truth. Now let me ask you this. With that as a background here, is there anything that's happening today that is any way, shape, form, or fashion like that and that causes those out here in the world to blaspheme the way of truth or to speak evil of the way of truth? Oh, yes, lots of things. What about false religion? What about false religion? You believe there are any infidels, any infidels out here in the world who look at so-called Christianity as it is uh, as it is projected in today's world, and say, "Well, you know, you people all claim to be Christians, and yet you've got this building here, and this building here, and this building next to it." and you're all teaching and practicing different things, you are a few doors away from each other, and yet you can't get together, and you all claim to believe the Bible. And you want me to believe the Bible. I want no part of it. That's exactly what was happening in Peter's day. And there are things in our world today, and false religion is one of them, that produces that same kind of result in the minds of many unbelievers. Isn't that, doesn't that help us to see why Christ in his final hours on earth prayed to the Father, neither do I pray for these apostles alone, but also for all those who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. Listen to it. That the world may believe that you sent me. 
Can we not understand the importance of that prayer when we see the religious division that exists and how much disbelief it produces and how many excuses it gives, in effect, for those out here in the world to say, well, you can't even get along and agree together on what this book teaches. How do you expect me to follow it? Well, this book is still God's Word. And yes, we can lay aside, if we are determined to do so, our creeds and the traditions and the practices of men, and we can unite on this book. And there were those in the Restoration Movement who understood that and believed that and courageously led men and women out of religious error and back to the pattern of New Testament Christianity. And it has been restored. And it is being practiced right here in this place and in many other places. But yes, there is still that religious division that still produces a barrier, I'm afraid, to so many who might otherwise be drawn to obey the truth. But instead of being drawn to that way of truth, they blaspheme the way of truth. Just as there were those, Peter said in his day, who would do that same thing. Why? Because of false teachers and false teaching. And then he goes on to say, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Deceptive words. They're slick. They're slick. They bring in these heresies secretly or privily or by the side of, of truth. They slip them in. They slip them in. They don't come in the front door, walk down the aisle, step in the pulpit and say, I'm so-and-so and I am here to destroy this congregation. They don't do that. The Crossroads Movement, which became known later as the Boston Movement and now the International Church of, of Christ. And there is a Chattanooga Church of Christ and there's an Atlanta Church of Christ. And that's the characteristic name of this movement. They don't say... White Oak, as in location, it's Chattanooga or it's Atlanta. That movement that divided congregation after congregation after congregation after congregation that destroyed the body of Christ in many places did not do it overnight. It did it just as Peter described it here and said it would happen. They came in. They worked among the members. They worked among the members to bypass and to destroy the influence of the eldership until ultimately they had worked, until they had enough of a base to be able to take over the congregation and to simply replace the eldership or to simply take over the building and let those who remain go wherever they wanted to go. And it was not only with that movement that that has taken place, but any movement that is liberal in nature and contrary to the Word of God, even among those, even among those who bind where, they, where the Word of God does not bind, those who go, who go too far in that movement on the other end of the spectrum, if you will. Tragically, that kind of takeover has been achieved in congregations by that same method. I had a teacher at the Memphis School of Preaching 
who's gone on to his reward. But there's a congregation near Birmingham right now that is of the so-called anti-persuasion. And when he had lost his voice and had a terrible voice problem when he was in the hospital, it was at that point in time that they made their final move and took over the congregation. While he was on his back in the hospital bed, that's when they took over. That's when they took over. And so it happens on both ends of the spectrum with those who bind where God hasn't bound and those who loose where God hasn't loosed, and the method is the same. There's one prominent liberal who's still living among us who advocated, after calling the Church of Christ a big, sick denomination, he advocated the takeover of churches by taking two steps forward and then if you get your hand slapped, or words to that effect, you take one step back and you bide your time. But after you've done that, have you made any advancement? Yeah, if you take two steps forward and then you get your hand slapped and you only take one step back, you've still taken one step forward. And you keep doing that long enough until you've taken enough steps that it's all over. It's all over. And that kind of process is happening in this city right now. To various degrees, it is happening. And in some cases, it has happened. And the degree is to the nth degree. But with others, it is simply in process. We need to be candid about these warnings because they are relevant to us in our time. And we certainly do not want to be unkind in confronting these errors. But we also cannot take lightly the kind of warnings that we're studying about here in Second Peter. They're real and they're serious. And these heresies are indeed destructive heresies. And yes, they are engaged in by deceptive means, through deceptive words. And as we have often said, it can be likened to that frog in the kettle process, where you put the frog in a kettle of boiling water, if you don't put the lid on real quick, he'll get out. But put him in some cool water and leave the lid off, <laughs> and he'll be fine. And then you warm him up slowly but surely until... He's cooked before he knows it. And tragically, tragically, that is happening and has happened in this city and in many others throughout our brotherhood. But that does not mean that we should be overly discouraged, but we certainly should be diligent and watchful and duly warned and absolutely determined that we are going to lovingly but uncompromisingly stand against such departure because Peter and other inspired men tell us we must do so because for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In other words, their destruction is not nodding off to sleep 
And their judgment is not idle, but they are very much hastening toward a time when judgment upon them is coming. And how sad and tragic it is if indeed we allow ourselves to be among them. And how tragic it is if we don't do everything we can to lovingly, as we said, but without compromise, do all that we can to encourage people to avoid that kind of end. Now, our time is about up for tonight, but we'll just simply preview that in the verses that we'll study next time, Peter is going to now take us to three examples, three examples of where God's judgment did not slumber, wasn't idle, and where he did bring judgment. One, upon the angels, two, upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we get to that, we're going to take a little bit of time to talk about the sin or sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I recognize that there were other sins, and Ezekiel, in his prophecy, talks about other sins other than the sin of homosexuality, but he also mentions abomination in a passage in Ezekiel that we'll look at. But I was reading just today, again, how some, and one, one man I read online who is a, a denominational preacher who is openly homosexual, and he is advocating and others have advocated that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah had absolutely nothing to do with homosexuality. It was lack of hospitality. They were just inhospitable people. And that's why God destroyed them. Because they didn't take care of the poor and needy. And Ezekiel says that was one of their problems. And they had other problems too. But the defense that is being made today in many circles is that lack of extreme lack of hospitality to the point of gang rape. They'll admit a gang rape against these angels, some will, but they characterize that as extreme lack of hospitality. But homosexuality was not the issue, according to some. We'll clearly show that it was when we look at this example. And then he talks about uh, Noah and the flood, and then... Uh, uh, the other two examples, the angels, Noah and the flood, and the angels, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, and he mentions Lot, that righteous man dwelling among them. But that will be our study for next time. The way of truth. The way of truth. How is the way of truth, as we have discussed that tonight in part of our study, viewed through you, through me? You know, that is a very sobering and very valid question. If I'm not a Christian, then the way of truth is not viewed through me at all because I haven't obeyed the truth. And so if you have not obeyed the truth tonight, then you need to do so so that the way of truth can be seen through you and your example as one who's obeyed the truth. Because you'll never influence anyone else to obey the truth until you yourself obey it. And for your own soul's sake, obviously. Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Obey the way of truth. 
and then live in such a way as to have that truth shine through you to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you're here tonight and the way of truth no longer shines through you and your light no longer reflects the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and you need to repent publicly of that because that is known publicly, we plead with you to do that. And for all those who need no repentance, do not be discouraged by the kind of warning that we have studied tonight and warnings that are clearly throughout the New Testament about departures from the truth. The truth is still knowable. It's still obtainable. And no matter what anyone else does with it or how anyone else abuses it, we can still hold to it. And we must do that. And we encourage you to always do that. But if you need to respond tonight as we stand to sing, will you come?